Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the podcast segment of the show that's not broadcast on station KALA. Our guest for this 446 show is Catherine Goebel, Paul A. Anderson Professor in the Arts at Augustana College and Director of the Whistler Center for Criticism. And we're going to be talking about James Whistler and his critics. Our history buffs for today are Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. Terry, why don't you start us off this time? All right, thank you. Yeah, Catherine, can you talk to us about the Digital Archive? I believe it was launched in 2020. Um, where is it going? Is it still a work in process? process, and uh, what exactly would we find on the website? Uh, yeah, well, it, it was actually launched uh, around 2009. We've been doing this for a while. Okay. Uh, I did my dissertation on the first half of Whistler's life, his criticism through the famous libel trial where he sued John Ruskin, the eminent Victorian critic, for libel. And I was at Glasgow working when Dr. Nigel Thorpe, who was the director of the Whistler Center, and those archives said, well, Kathy, if you've done the first half of his career, why don't you do his entire career? And being young and enthusiastic, I said, sure. It's a very, very big project. Um, it's probably going to include some 20,000 um, reviews by the time we're finished. And what I do is um, include our art history majors in the project and um, they can work with the original archives, which have been photographed from the University of Glasgow. Whistler kept his own scrapbooks. He was so keen on criticism, he even hired a press clipping agency to keep track of his reviews. So there are 26 very large um, scrapbooks at the University of Glasgow, as well as the British Library, Newspaper Library, and the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, and the Freer gallery where the Peacock Room is at the Smithsonian, uh, Charles Freer also collected U.S. clippings. So what we're doing is digitizing all of those, and it will be a database where these, unfortunately, in clipping these and attaching them to pages with acid glue, they're very rare and they're breaking down. So this will make for scholars of modernism of many different fields, as well as Whistler, able to get on the site and, let's say, do a search for any reviews of Whistler's mother or a search for Oscar Wilde and the reaction with Whistler or Henry James's reviews of Whistler. Um, what's really fun about the criticism is the cast of characters you have, even Charles Dickens, um, so many different writers who did criticism as well that are major uh, writers of the time. So the idea is this will bring this whole corpus together on one digital site and uh, that's what we're still working on right now. Very big project, and we're going to have a couple computer science majors get involved, too, to help with the design. Okay, Brett. I'm interested in um, learning a little more about um, his teaching career and um, how his acolytes or uh, former students um, progressed after him. Did they tend to hold him in high regard or after um, he had gone, did did they kind of uh, say, well, that was a good stepping stone, but we, we should move on to other things? No, I think they held him in very high regard. Um, 
there have been exhibits, um, a very well-known one that was called After Whistler, that showed his influence. His influence became especially strong in American art um, and the sort of aesthetics at the turn of the century, just as Monet's influence was very important toward the advent of Impressionism on the next generation. Um, so I think you, you find that he was held in very high regard, uh, was very successful at the end of his career, and um, again, he was so erudite um, and could tell a good story and had uh, just tremendous aesthetics that he influenced a lot of the directions toward abstraction and art for art's sake into the 20th century in, in our country as well. Catherine, I'm interested. We've talked during the radio show on a couple of, of occasions about Whistler being sort of the, the first um, modern uh, artist to really work the media, to understand the value of, of media and uh, of one's brand, which would I guess is what we would call it now. Um, I'm curious, do you see anybody... Um, in uh, in current times that strike you as a whisk, Whistler-like character? Is there somebody out there who's who's most represents kind of what Whistler was about? Oh, I think you could even look at some politicians in terms of uh, the pugnacious quality and the sense of bringing attention to oneself. Uh, certainly a lot of artists, but nowadays artists can self-represent and, you know, get their music out there, their visuals out there in their own way. I can't really think of one in particular, but I do think, um, boy, and in our time, the idea of a brand mark, the idea of making an impression, getting out there, the idea that any press coverage is good coverage, I think that filters into a lot of our fields right now. I think social media, we don't quite know where it's going to go, do we? at the moment in terms of spreading ideas and um, making your own name. I mean, he even developed with the Japanese influence a brand mark that was a butterfly, like the chop mark that Japanese prints would have as a signature. And so the butterfly became sort of his symbol. And sometimes when he would write a letter, he'd put a stinger on the end if it was to somebody that he wasn't getting particularly well along with. But I, I see a lot of echoes of this kind of um, branding and getting your name out there with the press in our own time in many different fields. I don't I, think it's just necessarily art. I was just going to throw out the the person that kind of jumped into my head, and she would have been uh, fairly early, you know, new on the on the scene of that uh, was Madonna, who had this ability to constantly sort of reinvent herself. Um, and worked very, very um, consciously in the press, making sure that she would represent whatever phase she was in in a very particular way and wanting to control that narrative. What do you think of that as, as an example? Am I sort of in the neighborhood? I think, that, I think it's a very interesting example. I think um, a lot of musicians are doing that sort of a, a narrative in how they present or a certain way. I mean, look at Lady Gaga moving kind of from this the sort of pop icon to doing things with, you know, mainstream traditional classic and kind of changing her brand a little bit throughout. Um, but I think the ability to do that, um, I think music is a good analogy to make. And he would like that musical analogy. 
but I think uh, you see a lot of it in contemporary society. Okay. I think he was one of the first to really grasp how much that could augment. I mean, you often see beautiful painters that never made it from the 19th century in terms of popular consumption, and yet they're, they're absolutely beautiful works and affordable then for a lot of us versus the big names. But what is it that, that creates that celebrity in our time and his? It's, it's a very interesting phenomena that I think cuts across many fields. Terry. Yes, uh, Catherine, you earlier mentioned the Peacock Room, and I'd read that it went to the Smithsonian in 1923. For those of us who've never seen it, if we walked in there, what kind of feeling would it evoke? What would we see? It's beautiful. Uh, it was for his his um, strongest patron, Frederick Leyland, who had just built a mansion in the new Princess Gate area uh, of London near the Victorian Albert Museum now. And um, he had had a Thomas Jekyll, one of the most popular interior designers, decorate it sort of a la Tudor dynasty with pendant lights coming down in dark wood. And um, he built shelves to hold his blue and white collection of Asian porcelains that Whistler encouraged him to um, collect. And as it turned out, when... Whistler just said to him, do you mind if I touch things up a little bit? Because Leyland had bought one of his uh, Japanese paintings, The Princess from the Country of Porcelain, that you've mentioned. And he, when Leyland went to Liverpool for business, Whistler thought the Oriental rug didn't work, so he cut off the edge of it. I think we all know from Antique Roadshow you don't want to cut up an antique rug. Um, and he said he just got carried away and started painting over all the antique leather wall, which came with Catherine of Aragon from Spain when she married into the Tudor dynasty. So it was Renaissance leather. And um, he charged many, many pounds worth of gold paint and painted gold peacocks against this sort of uh, teal color. And he said, I just got carried away. It just happened. And um, so when you walk in, it almost feels like entering a beautiful church in terms of the gold butterflies and peacocks um, did lots of variants on it. And he had said that he just sort of created it. And when the uh, paint supplier asked him, is Leyland going to be upset that you're charging so much paint to him? Whistler responded, well, basically he's a Philistine and the only way he knows the value of art is if it costs a lot. So I'll make sure this room costs him a lot. I mean, it's the typical Bohemian versus the Philistine, but it has an absolutely gorgeous um, sort of aura to it with the gold. And um, the freer will open the windows sometimes, the, the sort of shutters against the windows, and the light comes in and plays off the gold. Sort of reminds me of a Byzantine interior, and it's, it's quite lovely. But when Leyland came back, he was very angry, and Whistler never got to spend time with Leyland. He lost his best patron over the room. But he snuck in and did one final mural of fighting peacocks, and he made himself as the poor little peacock and Leyland with a ruffled shirt that he was known to wear as the aggressive peacock. And Leyland refused to pay him anything in, in um, pounds. He only paid him in pounds, whereas guineas were for the gentleman. So there was always that. But Whistler said even though he'd never get to come in the house again or the room, 
he would be happy because Leyland would always have to eat roast peacock every night and look at his paintings. So it was just <laughs> one of those things, sort of, sort of like the libel trial, where for the point of artistic integrity, I guess, or freedom, he lost his best patron. And so when Leyland died, the house was up for auction, and actually it was taken down. Beatrice, Whistler's wife, encouraged Charles Fur to buy it, and that's when it came to the States. And then Fur gave it to the Smithsonian. Terry, I can tell you, having had been lucky enough to actually see it, um, I'm glad that Catherine talked about it having kind of a Byzantine, because my response, my, my it, as I walked in, my initial response was that I was walking into the pages of the Arabian Nights. Nice. Yeah. It, it has that very sort of um, Middle Eastern, uh, mm -hmm. magical kind of fantasy sort of. Um, I can't imagine, and I don't know, Catherine, if you can talk to, but I, I can't imagine actually using that room. It, it's it's almost too much to 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 deal with. The the mind kind of gets overwhelmed or numbed after a while. Um, did you have that feeling? I, I was like, it's one of those rooms I'd kind of close up and maybe open three times a year. <laughs> well, even even Whistler's friends said that the, the painting with the teal kind of conflicted with the blue and white porcelain with the cobalt blue for which the shelves are lined. But um, I don't know. I, I think it's the peacock was a symbol that an auspicious symbol for Japanese art. And that's where he got the idea from things like folding screens and fans and porcelain that were exported at the time. But, yeah, I, I've never done dinner there. I've been there several times. But um, I don't know. It, it's typical of turn-of-the-century opulence, I think. And um, it's really quite beautiful. The story was that the designer came and saw what he had done to his room and went home and gilded his floor and spent the rest of his life in an asylum. <laughs> and Whistler was said to have said, well, I do have that effect on people sometimes. <laughs> I mean, there's always a quip. There's always a Right, story. right. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> but thank goodness Greer bought it and preserved it, because otherwise it probably would have gone down with the house when it was taken down. Yep. <laughs> well, we would like to thank our guest for this 446th show, Catherine <laughs> Goebel, Paul A. Anderson Professor in the Arts, at Augustana College and director of the Whistler Center for Criticism, who's been talking to us about James Whistler and his critics. The history buff for today's show were Brett Bernard and Terry Toppler. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2, 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. ROI is recorded at Station KALA, St. Ambrose University.